So if you would open up with me to our sermon text this morning, which comes once again from 1 Kings, 1 Kings chapter 20. And we'll be in the second half of this chapter. We were in the first half of the chapter a few weeks ago, the last half of the chapter today, verses 23 through 43. So hear now the word of the Lord, 1 Kings chapter 20, verses 23 through 43. After their defeat, Ben-Hadad's officers said to him, the Israelite gods are gods of the hills. That's why they won. But we can beat them easily on the plains. Only this time replace the kings with field commanders. Recruit another army like the one you lost. Give us the same number of horses, chariots, and men, and we will fight against them on the plains. There's no doubt that we will beat them. So King Ben-Hadad did as they suggested. The following spring, he called up the Aramean army and marched out against Israel, this time at Aphek. Israel then mustered its army, set up supply lines, and marched out for battle. But the Israelite army looked like two little flocks of goats in comparison to the vast Aramean forces that filled the countryside. Then the man of God went to the king of Israel and said, this is what the Lord says. The Arameans have said, the Lord is a God of the hills and not of the plains. So I will defeat this army for you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. The two armies camped opposite each other for seven days. And on the seventh day, the battle began. The Israelites killed 100,000 Aramean foot soldiers in one day. The rest fled into the town of Aphek, but the wall fell on them and killed another 27,000. Ben-Hadad fled into the town and hid in a secret room. Ben-Hadad's officer said to him, Sir, we have heard that the kings of Israel are merciful. So let's humble ourselves by wearing burlap around our waists and putting ropes on our heads and surrender to the king of Israel. Then perhaps he will let you live. So they put on burlap and ropes and they went to the king of Israel and begged, your servant Ben-Hadad says, please let me live. The king of Israel responded, is he still alive? He is my brother. The men took his words as a good sign and they quickly picked up on his words. Yes, they said, your brother Ben-Hadad. The men took, or go and get him, the king of Israel told them. And when Ben-Hadad arrived, Ahab invited him up into his chariot. Ben-Hadad told him, I will give back the towns my father took from your father and you may establish places of trade in Damascus as my father did in Samaria. Then Ahab said, I will release you under these conditions. So they made a new treaty and Ben-Hadad was set free. Meanwhile, the Lord instructed one of the group of prophets to say to another man, hit me. But the man refused to hit the prophet. Then the prophet told him, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, a lion will kill you as soon as you leave me. And when he had gone, a lion did attack and kill him. Then the prophet turned to another man and said, hit me. So he struck the prophet and wounded him. The prophet placed a bandage over his eyes to disguise himself and then waited behind, beside the road for the king. As the king passed by, the prophet called out to him, sir, I was in the thick of battle and suddenly a man brought me a prisoner. 
He said, guard this man. If for any reason he gets away, you will either die or pay a fine of 75 pounds of silver. But while I was busy doing something else, the prisoner disappeared. Well, it's your own fault, the king replied. You have brought the judgment on yourself. Then the prophet quickly pulled the bandage from his eyes and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. The prophet said to him, this is what the Lord says, because you have spared the man I said must be destroyed, now you must die in his place and your people will die instead of his people. So the king of Israel went home to Samaria, angry and sullen. Ascends the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you once again for your word to us. We thank you that even as this battle was playing out and as these real historical events unfolded, Lord, you knew that you would have this group of people sitting at the foot of your word in this very place today, February 25th, 2024. And so Lord, we pray now simply that your Holy Spirit would accomplish all that you have deemed this word to accomplish in our hearts and souls right now. Give us alertness. Give us a desire and a passion to understand your word. Give us a heart to understand, eyes to see and ears to hear all that you have for us today. We pray it in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. And it's a joy to be back in the pulpit here this morning. Thank you uh, to both Jay and Alan who were able to preach these last two Sundays. Uh, but it is also a joy to be back in here. And as we come back to our sermon that series this week, after a couple weeks away, I want to ask this question as a way to get us started back into 1 Kings. And I'll ask it this way. Have you ever experienced the Lord bringing an incredible victory into your life, an incredible victory in your life. Perhaps it was a great victory over some sin in your life that had plagued you for a long time. Maybe it was a great victory over some weakness of yours that you had really kind of suffered through for a long time. Perhaps it was a great victory over some difficult circumstance that you were having to persevere and endure for a long time. You see, we all have sins that need to be defeated. We all have weaknesses that hamper us, that we would love to see overcome. We all have difficult circumstances in life. And while we're not promised to always have those circumstances changed, the Lord does often bring victory over those difficult circumstances in his timing. You see, we all have areas of our life where we could list right now that we want the Lord to bring great victory into. And I'd imagine as we think back on our lives, we all have experienced these victories in some ways. And that is the kind of passage we're coming into here this morning. Israel is in the need of a great victory. You may remember where we were a few weeks ago. We saw that the Lord delivered Israel from the hands of their enemies, the Aramaeans, who we call today the Syrians. Some of your translations probably say it that way as we were reading through, that's the way I'll refer to them, the Syrians. However, the victory in verses one to 22 was not a complete victory. Reason being, the king of Syria was able to escape. 
And because the king of Syria was able to escape, there was going to be another battle. And we finish that sermon with a prophet of the Lord telling Israel's king, King Ahab, that the Syrians would in fact return that next year. So what we see is an, 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 excuse me, an initial victory in verses 1 to 22, but now there is still this impending threat that's coming up. And for a whole year, the Israelites are struggling with this. They know this. And so there is this need for a great victory. And that's what we're going to read about this morning. God will give them another great victory with the hope that his people will make that victory complete. And again, as a quick way to get us thinking the right way about this passage, I'll ask that first question in a slightly different way. Has God ever given you a great victory over a particular sin, for instance, only for you to be content with a partial victory over that sin? Because you still held something back of that sin for yourself, so there is still this potential for continued struggle with that sin in the future. I bet all of us can relate to that, as I hope will become clear as we work our way through this sermon this morning. So that said, we have two main points today. Point number one, the Lord makes a habit of accomplishing mighty victories for his people. Praise the Lord for that. The Lord makes a habit of accomplishing mighty victories for his people. Point number two, then, we must make sure we do not limit the scope of God's victories in our life. We must make sure we don't limit the scope of God's victories in our life. So again, point number one, the Lord makes a habit of accomplishing mighty victories for his people. We see this in verses 23 to 30. And I will say there is a lot here. I was somewhat tempted to just kind of only do 23 to 30 because of, of how much is here, but we'll give just an overview of these verses um, that I think will be helpful today. So we begin our passage again by looking at the Syrian thought process, okay? The Syrians are defeated. They have returned back to their land. And as they've been dominated and thoroughly beaten, very few of their soldiers were able to escape. King Ben-Hadad gets back to his homeland as fast as he can. And it's at that point that he gets advice from his officers. And this is what they tell him. Verse 23, the Israelite gods are gods of the hills. That is why they won. But we can beat them easily on the plains. All right, now we could criticize that thought in many ways and we will in just a moment. But before we criticize them, I actually wanna commend them which may be a little surprising at first. But think about it this way. What is there to commend the Syrian officials with? Well, they recognize that their defeat had to have been a supernatural loss. They recognize that it was such a stunning loss with such a massive army losing to such a weak army that they know that only the gods, as they term it, could have been responsible for it. Surely it couldn't have been the strength of the Israelite army. There had to have been a supernatural force at play. You know what? They're right about that fact, aren't they? Now they're not gonna make the right conclusions, but they are correct in their observations. They didn't lose because they were weaker in their human strength. 
they lost because some divine intervention was at play. Let me ask you, in your day-to-day life, as you go throughout just your circumstances of life, when you see things unfold in a very particular way, at a very particular time, are you quick to recognize the Lord's involvement in those things? I'll ask it this way. Do you see the events of your day as divinely ordained events Or do you see the events of your day simply as an annoying inconvenience? Or maybe it's a good event and you begin to think of it as a product of your great planning or preparation or execution. You see, these Syrian officials surely knew that they were foolish in getting drunk when a battle was on the horizon. And yet they recognized that it really shouldn't have mattered at all. Now kind of think about it this way. Could a drunk NBA basketball player still beat a middle school basketball player in one-on-one? Probably so, right? Likewise, the Syrian army shouldn't have had any trouble with the youths who led Israel out in battle, even with their commanders being drunk. So when they are so thoroughly defeated, they rightly recognize there was a divine element at play. But then they make their mistake. You see, their their mistake is not acknowledging a divine intervention. Their mistake is thinking that they can somehow avoid going up against that divine intervention next time. Let me say that again. Their mistake is not recognizing a divine intervention. Their mistake is thinking they can avoid going up against that divine intervention the next time. They know that if the playing field is level, they will defeat Israel. And you know what? I'm pretty certain that they're right about that fact. Therefore, they recognize that only a divine element could defeat them. And I think they're right about that fact too. But instead of then seeing all that and seeking to know that God or worship the God who defeated them, they try to limit his power. And here's what they do. They think they can box off the Lord in a corner and leave his authority to the hills and pretend that he cannot act powerfully on the plains. Now, I will say here, why do you think they thought he was a God only of the hills? Was probably because they had heard of Elijah's great victory on top of Mount Carmel. All right, that was back in 1 Kings 18. They probably knew that the Israelite God was Elijah's God, that he was a very powerful God, that he had displayed that power very powerfully on top of Mount Carmel. So this is their connection, right? They're trying to, in their own human wisdom, make sense of things. So what they're going to do, instead of acknowledging this God is real and powerful and we wanna seek his face, they try to avoid him. Instead of running towards him for refuge, they try to escape him. They try to act as if he is limited and thus they can try to figure out his limitations and skirt around his edges. And again, let me say, before we hammer the Syrians here, let me ask, don't we do this in our daily lives sometimes? When you're in a hard place of life, y'all, whether it's a hard heart because of some sin you're in, or y'all, it may be just a hard circumstance that is leaving you bitter in that moment. Aren't we tempted to try and avoid God, 
to try and escape him instead of running towards him. And y'all, I will admit honestly this week, I have wrestled with this very thing in light of our recent trial as a family. You see, it is part of our fallen nature to acknowledge the divine element in things, but then to try and box the Lord off in a corner and figure out a way to move forward without having to encounter him. And that's what the Syrians are doing. But let me encourage you, do not be like the Syrians. When we encounter these hard times, I pray that we will run towards the Lord instead of trying to box him out, instead of trying to figure out a place that we think we can go forward without his quote unquote interference or a way to just kind of navigate through a few days of life without having to really face him or acknowledge the Lord. Okay, so back to our text. The Syrians do arrive in Israel. They're ready to fight. The Israelites have spent the entire year preparing themselves and getting themselves ready for this battle, but all of their best efforts, the total sum of everything their human strength and human wisdom could muster appeared like two little flocks of goats in comparison to the vast Syrian army that filled the countryside. So who did the better job preparing for battle over the course of the year? It was the Syrians, wasn't it? They did a better job. They gathered a much stronger army with much greater provision for themselves. They have a much better plan moving forward from a human perspective. After all, there is actually human wisdom when you have the larger army to fight that battle on the plains, on flat ground. But all of that said, there is this other element in there. We see that the Lord is going to defend his name. Verse 28, the prophet, another prophet comes to King Ahab and he gives him this message. This is what the Lord says. The Aramaeans, the Syrians have said, the Lord is a God of the hills and not of the plains. So therefore, I will defeat this vast army for you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Notice here, very importantly, why is it that the Lord is going to bring this victory to Israel? Two reasons. The Lord gives two reasons. Number one, it, is, it will be a form of judgment against those who have provoked his anger without running to him for refuge. And number two, it will be a reminder to his people. And let me say that again. It is a form of judgment against those who have provoked his anger without running to him for refuge and a reminder to those who are God's people. And I will say this, this brings us all the way to that final day, that day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns. Because think of it this way, every human on earth ultimately, eventually will be on one side of this or the other. When God's great victory on the final day of this world arrives, it will be as a form of judgment against all who have provoked his anger without running to him for refuge and as a final reminder to all of God's people of his love and mercy and power and holiness. Now, I missed this next thing in the text the first time I read through it, but Look at how it is God brings this great victory. I tried to read it in such a way that maybe you were catching onto this as we did. 
Um, but notice the two armies camp opposite each other for how many days? Seven days, all right? That is to say, seven consecutive days, this massive Syrian army who at any point in time could have taken the fight, they don't. And they're looking across the countryside at the Israelite army who looks like two little flocks of goats for seven days. Every advantage in their favor, yet seven days the standoff continues until finally on the seventh day, we don't see rest, do we? We see action. We see final decisive victory. And what is the end of that final decisive victory? It is that the walls came tumbling down. But this time, not the walls of Jericho. It was the walls of Aphek. The battle begins. The Israelites once again gain the upper hand. A hundred thousand enemy soldiers are killed. The Syrians flee into Aphek. The walls come tumbling down there on the seventh day when the battle commences, killing the remaining 27,000 soldiers in such a way that every Israelite should be reminded of something. They should be reminded of Jericho, of the very first battle when Israel entered the promised land. Now y'all, there is a ton we could say here. Okay, this is important. But there's one crucial thing we wanna notice. If you look back at 1 Kings 16, okay, this was four chapters earlier. I think this was like back around Thanksgiving, all right? We read a summary passage of Ahab assuming the throne, all right, of Ahab coming to power. And in that passage, there's this seemingly random statement that's hard to make sense of. Here's what it is. In that passage we read, 1 Kings 16, 34, it was during Ahab's reign that Hiel, a man from Bethel, rebuilt Jericho. When he laid its foundations, it cost him the life of his oldest son, Abiram. And when he completed it and set up its gates, it cost him the life of his youngest son, Sagub. This all happened according to the message from the Lord concerning Jericho, spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. You see, centuries before, God had commanded that Jericho never be rebuilt. Why? That ruin was supposed to be a perpetual reminder of God's great victory, that first victory as they marched into the promised land. But then you fast forward hundreds of years and it's during Ahab's reign that things have gotten so bad in Israel that Jericho is in fact rebuilt at the cost of that man's son's lives. So now in that very same generation, still in the days of the reign of Ahab, the Lord purposefully chooses to bring judgment on the Syrians in almost the exact same way as the story of Jericho from centuries before. Why? To remind his people of who he is. They had obviously forgotten the story of Jericho or either they didn't care about the story of Jericho because they rebuilt Jericho against the Lord's command. So the Lord is now reminding his people once again of who he is. And hopefully this will be the beginning of a brand new reformation. You see, the Lord makes a habit of accomplishing mighty victories for his people. And this is another one. There's so many throughout the scriptures. And this one's done in such an intentional way that it is to remind them of the Lord's other victories. Brothers and sisters, when you see these victories in your life, they are to remind you, to call to mind 
all the times the Lord has delivered, all the times the Lord has been your place of refuge. And so for them here, as it is with us, there is this promise of total redemption, of a fresh start. By the way, this is happening in the days of Elisha now, just as it happened in Jericho in the days of Joshua, whose names both mean the Lord saves. We went over that a number of weeks ago. It is an amazing opportunity with the walls of Aphek having crumbled down. And it makes me sad to go into our second point now this morning in many ways because that is not what is consolidated by Ahab. So point number two, we must make sure we don't limit the scope of God's victories in our life. Of course, we can't limit the scope of his ultimate victories, but we're speaking here of these temporal victories right now. We see this throughout the rest of the chapter. Once the Syrians are defeated, the officers now have new advice for the Syrian king. They hope to surrender in such a way that the Israelite king will let him live. And then we see that's what Ahab does. In fact, Ahab even calls Ben-Hadad his brother, all right? As opposed to seeing him as this enemy of the Lord's people and the enemy of God himself, he is uniting himself to him in this way. And so they negotiate a sort of treaty. Ahab allows Ben-Hadad to return home safely. And in Ahab's mind, that's the end of the battle. We have to ask ourselves, what do we make of this decision? All right, on the one hand, it's very important that we acknowledge this. This makes a lot of sense from a human perspective, All right? We have to acknowledge that. In human wisdom, you can see how this makes sense. We learned a few weeks ago that there is a massive empire that is emerging, all right? The empire of Assyria. And the Arameans, the Syrians, are between Israel and Assyria. So you can see what is Ahab doing? He's, he likes the fact that there is this Syrian nation between him and Assyria. So there is some human wisdom, some human thought in negotiating a treaty in recognition that there is this massive empire that is a greater threat to both of them in the future, okay? But on the other hand, this is very clearly a holy war. And as such, this king who has defied God's people and most emphatically God himself, King Ben-Hadad, he should receive capital punishment. And if that wasn't clear enough, the way this victory comes with Jericho is a reminder, everything must be destroyed. And even if he didn't know that he should have done that, he should have at least sought the Lord's wisdom in what to do with King Ben-Hadad. So the Lord raises up a prophet to deliver this message to Ahab. And before the prophet gets to him, we have this bizarre scene where the prophet instructs a man to hit him in the face. The man does not do it, and he's eaten by a lion. Now, I will say here, this is not some random person asking another random person to do this. So kids, don't hear this play out and then try this at home, okay? Rather, this is a legitimate prophet of the Lord who was known as a prophet of the Lord, speaking under the authority of the Lord, the word of the Lord. So it's clear that when this man refuses to hit the prophet in the face, he is 
rebelling against God's word. That is what we see very clearly. And rebellion against the word of the Lord requires punishment. And I will pause there and say one more time, any rebellion, as insignificant as it may seem to us, any rebellion against God's word requires ultimate punishment. That is why we need Jesus to take away the punishment for our rebellion. And if we think that's too harsh, then we are actually undervaluing what Christ did on the cross. The wages of sin is death and we are not owed a delay in that punishment for our rebellion. So if you have not been made right with the Lord yet through faith and repentance, I wanna encourage you today, make today that day that you can have all of the punishment for all your rebellion against the word of the Lord taken away from you, put on Christ, that you may be free to live life eternal. Now, of course, what happens here mirrors what we see with Ahab. Ahab should have killed the Syrian king, but under the guise of being merciful, he's actually rebelling against the Lord. By the way, culturally, can't we see so much of that? How many times does our culture, under the guise of being merciful or loving, actually embrace rebellion against God's word? Let us not fall into that trap. But under the guise of being merciful, he is rebelling against the Lord and his word. So the punishment shown with this first man is predictive of punishment coming for Ahab. Now from there, the prophet disguises himself as a soldier. By the way, this will be important in a couple of weeks. So I just kind of put a pin in this. And he gives a story about being charged to guard a captured man and not let him go. In the story, the prophet claims that the reason he let the prisoner go was simply that he was busy doing other things. Now, I don't know how many of you have put, can put yourself in the mindset of being on a battlefield, but imagine a prisoner being taken captive and a commander saying, guard this prisoner with your life and then you get busy doing other things that the prisoner escapes, right? No good reason in itself, but that's the scenario that plays out. And of course, the king responds rightly. He sees very clearly the soldier in the scenario was foolish and would have to suffer the consequences. And then the prophet reveals himself to Ahab and essentially notes that Ahab has condemned himself by his own words, a scene very reminiscent of David with Nathan back in 2 Samuel. And by the way, I wanna go down just a little bit of a side road here because this is such an illuminating point in God's word. If we skip forward to the New Testament, Paul tells us this, Romans 2.14, he says, even Gentiles or unbelievers who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they're doing right. You see, that is in essence what the prophet is doing here for Ahab. Ahab has talked himself into thinking that he has done right and letting Ben-Hadad go. And yet when he's faced with the exact same scenario from another angle, he clearly knows what is right, and thus he has condemned himself. 
All right, now I'll give y'all a little bit of a personal example here. There are nights, I'm sure some of the adults here can understand this, where I just don't wanna go to bed. What do they call it? Bedtime revenge or something like that, right? You stay up a little later than you probably should. I'm enjoying whatever I'm doing on the couch, so I stay up later than I should. And in my mind, I can justify it and make all these excuses for why my decision to stay up late is totally okay. But then inevitably, faced with Hank or Mary Grace wanting to stay up a little bit later, what do I do? I give them all the right reasons why staying up late is a bad decision. And in doing so, what have I done? I've given them good, wise, right counsel, and I've exposed my own folly and foolishness when I do the same thing. Now, that's a bit of a silly example, but don't we do this with many more serious things? And it's a reminder that people apart from the Lord, right, while people may convince themselves that certain sinful things are fine, eventually on the day of judgment, their own words and their own consciences that played itself out in their real life will actually be the very things that are used to condemn them. Because in most arenas in life, they will prove that the law of God was actually written in their hearts by the right judgments they make in certain areas that expose themselves as being sinful in their, in their places. And that's what Ahab does. He is exposed by his own right and wise counsel, isn't he? You see, he's not wrong in the declaration he makes to the prophet. It's actually the fact that he judged rightly that exposes his foolishness and sinfulness. Parents, what is one of the hardest things for us to see in our children? It's our own sin playing out in their lives because we see it in them. And we know the truth that we need to speak in that place. And yet when we do so, it brings conviction upon our own shoulders. And we don't like that very much as human beings. For Ahab, his consequences are actually quite extreme. This is the final wicked decision for Ahab that pushes him past a certain point. He's had many chances to repent and turn from judgment. So have the people. But this one carries a harsh penalty. The Lord says, because you have spared the man I said must be destroyed, now you must die in his place and your people will die instead of his people. It is a very sad state of affairs. And I'll put it this way. Ahab thought, it it certainly seems, it seems that Ahab thinks that by sparing Ben-Hadad, he might save his people from the threat of an Assyrian attack in the future. But as we will find out, one of the unintended consequences for Ahab is that his decision to save Ben-Hadad is that it will only serve to hasten the Assyrians coming to conquer Israel in the not-so-distant future. Ahab made a decision apart from the Lord choosing to trust his wisdom instead of God's demands. And as a result, because he is the king of Israel, his people will suffer at the hands of the empire he was trying to protect them from. And let me say that one more time. That's a mouthful, but it's very important. We can plug so many things in our own life here. Ahab made a decision apart from the Lord, 
choosing to trust his wisdom instead of the Lord's commands. And as a result, since he was the king of Israel, his people will now suffer at the hands of the empire he was trying to protect them from. That is the definition of why it is so foolish to trust our own human wisdom and strength, right? It leads us to rebel against the word of the Lord because we think we know better and oftentimes the very thing we were afraid of ends up happening when it didn't have to if we had just trusted the Lord and obeyed his word. And that's where I want us to land the plane this morning. Brothers and sisters, Ahab had a great victory in this chapter and yet he goes home angry and sullen. If he had trusted the Lord and obeyed the word, the Lord all the way through this victory, it would have been a complete victory, an utter victory that would have spared his people and himself in so many ways. But instead, he limited the scope of that victory by inserting his own wisdom into the equation against the word of the Lord. And y'all, we can all learn from this, can't we? When God brings great victory into our lives over sin or when he delivers us from a very difficult season or situation or when he gives us his divine strength in places where we were weak praise God for all of those things and I would bet all of us could give examples of all three of those things in our lives perhaps even from the last 12 months you could cite some of these things and yet here's our caution don't get to the end of that deliverance, of that salvation, of that victory, and then insert your human wisdom and strength right around the next corner. Don't be freed from one sin in your life that has been a long time struggle with you only to find the joy of freedom from that sin as a means to walk headlong down another unwise path of life where your propensity to sin just comes back up in a different way. Don't be brought out of a very difficult season of life where you trusted deeply in the Lord and you saw him bring you all the way through it just to go into a time of prosperity and begin to think about how great you are and all the wise moves you made to bring that about. And all of a sudden that season of prosperity is much drier than your season of adversity and difficulty was. Don't receive God's strength to endure in places where you were weak and where you were needy. Just to look back on those times in retrospect and think of them as a source of pride or spiritual arrogance as you see other people going through times of weakness or neediness and they can't seem to navigate out of it the way you kind of look back and think that you did. And of course, I could go on and on. But what I'm saying is this. Don't let the victories of God in your life over sin, over weakness, and over difficult circumstances be truncated, be cut short because you decided that you were content with a minor victory and now you'd rather just go back to trusting yourself like you had been before. And that leads us to our ultimate conclusion here. This is a little bit of a window into Christ as our victor, isn't it? We don't think on this all that much, but I want us to, to think on this here as we close. There is one who lived on this earth that never cut short the victories 
in his life. One who never became so content with minor victories that he sat back and rested instead of pressing on to the more complete, full victory. And of course, that person is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ pressed forward through all the sin that he carried on his shoulders, enduring all the difficulties and hardships of his life as the Messiah and giving up all his strength and glory to be made weak and needy like us. And he did it all for the glory set before him, for the victories that he was called to and actually achieved, that he accomplished at an incredible cost to himself, that through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, he is now holding out to all of us today. Listen here, Ahab's people suffered because of his foolish decision to cut short the victory of the Lord and trust in himself instead. But Jesus' people, the sheep of his flock, receive all of the fullness of his victories because he endured it all and persevered to the end in order to accomplish every wonderful victory that he is able to hold out to us today in the proclamation of the gospel. Listen to these victories. Victory over Satan. Victory over sin. Victory over all our hardships in this wilderness life that will not last forever. Victories over everything that slows us down and makes us weak. And finally, victory over that great enemy, death itself. So as we close our sermon today, let me implore you, put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the one and only great victor who did not rest until every single victory for his people was won, until all the victories had been accomplished, until it was finished, so that you may now inherit salvation today and receive every single one of his victories credited to your account today as you turn from your sin and by faith put your trust in Christ Jesus, our great victor, our Lord and Savior forever and ever. In the name of the Father and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let us pray. Almighty God, Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your word to us. Lord, we thank you for all the victories that you do bring into our life here in this world, the victories you bring us over our sins, through difficult circumstances, Lord, through weaknesses that we have. We also recognize that in this world, the final victory over some of those things is, is not characterizing, that we're called to persevere. But Lord, we know that that ultimate final victory over every one of those things is certainly ours in Christ Jesus. Lord, may you help us to embrace Jesus in all of these struggles that we have in our lives. And Lord, when you bring victories into our life, do not let us be content with minor victories and then let us go back to trusting in ourselves once again. But Lord, help us to press forward. Help us to, to move forward with perseverance and endurance and boldness and joy and strength to the greater victories 
that you have set before us in our walks of faith. Lord, may you do that for us individually and may you do that for us corporately as a church here at Village Press. We love you, Lord. We thank you for your word to us. We pray it all in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.